Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Noelle Jafrida, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be speaking with Aurelia Campbell about her recent book, What the Emperor Built, Architecture and Empire in the Early Ming, published by the University of Washington Press in 2020. Campbell's book examines the building projects of the Ming Emperor Yongle uh, to consider how imperial ideology takes shape in built space. She looks closely at the various mechanisms, including skilled craftsmen, construction materials, and precious objects that connected the capital to distant regions, arguing that architecture helped draw the emperor and his empire more closely together. By addressing how and why buildings were constructed, Her book expands our understanding of imperial Chinese architecture as a building typology. Now, Aurelia Campbell's research centers on architecture and material culture from the Yuan, Ming, and Qing periods in China. She's particularly interested in issues concerning materials and technologies, sacred objects and spaces, and the relationship between the imperial court and outlying regions. This book, What the Emperor Built, Architecture, Architecture and Empire in the Early Ming is her first monograph. Aurelia is currently Associate Professor of Art History at Boston College. Aurelia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me, Noelle. So I'd like to begin by asking you about your background and research interests. Sure. Um, So my research interests are namely in Chinese architectural history, though I'm very much interested in all of the material that comes with the architecture. So, um, you know, the objects, furniture, interior decor of palaces or temples or whatever architecture is under my consideration. Uh, My background is lengthy, I suppose, but that pertaining to the book um, probably began after college. I lived in China for four years after college and uh, taught English and studied Chinese. And while I was there, I just became, I just totally fell in love with uh, the traditional architecture of China. So I went to graduate school to study that in particular, thinking that maybe I would go into historic preservation or cultural heritage or something along those lines. Um, But once I started on the PhD track, I, well, I I saw this as a viable career, you know, becoming a professor as a viable career option, and also really noticed that there was a huge lack of scholarship on Chinese architectural history, especially in English. And that, and and what there was out there, I felt uh, was more oriented towards technical studies of the timber frame rather than looking at buildings in a social, uh, you know, religious context. So in other words, looking at the buildings more as art objects. So I I really saw an opportunity there to um, contribute something to this field. Thank you. Well, Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you a little more specifically, um, how did you come to work on Ming architecture in general and Yongle's imperial projects in particular? 
So Ming architecture in general has been severely neglected uh, in contrast to architecture from earlier periods, namely uh, late Tang, Song, Liao, Jin, and Yuan architecture. So no wooden building survived before the Tang dynasty. So uh, what we know about architecture before the Tang dynasty comes mostly from archaeology or cave temples or uh, architecture underground, such as tombs. Um, So in terms of the Chinese architectural history, the field was really defined in the 20th century by Liang Sicheng. And he and his colleagues working in the early 20th century really shaped the field. um, And the field that was handed down to me that was really... Uh, you know, as I said, shaped by this group of twenty early twentieth century architectural historians was really about timber frame architecture and uh, he- heavily concentrated on those the historical periods, what we now maybe call middle period China uh, that I just mentioned. So there is very little scholarship on Ming Dynasty architecture, and that's something I noticed almost immediately in graduate school. Everything we read was on the architecture of a specific time period. I think, you know, I was interested in later periods because a lot of that was what I saw saw still standing in China when I had been living there. You know, a lot of Ming buildings uh, and especially a lot of Qing buildings. And so I I originally decided to focus on Ming architecture just because I saw a, a wide gap in scholarship. In terms of why Yongle uh, in particular... Uh, this was when I was reading in during my PhD for my comprehensive examinations on Ming architecture, Yongle kept coming up again and again. And of course, he's at the very beginning of the Ming period. So it's somewhat surprising that uh, the buildings he erected are some of the, the few imperial buildings still standing. Um, but his buildings just kept coming up uh, in terms of well-preserved buildings and also buildings with um, interesting stories. So I just started noticing nobody had written, nobody had said anything on Yongle as a builder and or looked at all of his construction projects uh, comprehensively, but they came up here and there in the literature. Um, and so I, I noticed that he was building at the Sino-Tibetan frontier and he was building in Beijing and he was building in Nanjing and he was building on Mount Wudong in central China. And then, you know, as I dug further, I saw that he was uh getting his materials for his imperial palaces in the southwest of China. So once the more I read, the more I re- realized that, wow, there's really a story here that nobody's really told. Uh, so I, I uh, decided to pursue it. Great. Well, um, as you know, I am also uh, an, a Ming person and interested in Yongle for, for Taoist reasons. So I wonder if you would tell some of our listeners who might not be as familiar with Yongle um, what makes him so fascinating? So tell us a little about him. Well, he's fascinating for a number of reasons. I mean, he's known as the great usurper. So he usurped the throne from his nephew to become emperor. Um, so, you know, he's notorious for that. But he also, his reign was one of the, I 
would argue, the greatest in all of Chinese history in terms of what he left behind, not only in terms of architecture, which is what I try to show in my book, but he's he's much more well known for uh, the Yongle Dadia and a huge encyclopedia, which uh, until recently was, until Wikipedia surpassed it recently, this was the largest encyclopedia in world history for, for centuries. Um, and of course, the famous uh, sea voyages of Zheng He, uh, which were sponsored by Yongle. So those were magnificent sea voyages, uh, which reached the tip of Africa. Um, so they were big, huge, they were huge diplomatic missions, and these were sponsored by Yongle. Um, so he also was a great patron of the arts and, uh, you know, a great military ruler. He personally led several campaigns uh, in the north against the Mongols. So he was really an extraordinary person. I mean, I don't think he was probably not a likable person in his life. I think his great achievements came at huge costs. And that's something I learned, you know, through just examining his achievements in relation to architecture in my book. Um, These were not, he was not a a compassionate or benevolent (laughs) ruler, but he left behind a lot of interesting stuff for us to talk about and to analyze. Um, So he, you know, is a great emperor. Okay, thank you. So I'd like to go through and ask you some questions about the different chapters in your book. Um, So uh, your first chapter deals with um, design and construction of the northern capital in Beijing, the imperial capital, including the Forbidden City. And in this chapter, you talk about it as his largest and most ambitious project. I wonder if you might describe uh, this project and give us an idea of what these buildings were like and what uh, you you refer to him as perfecting the past in this chapter. So I wonder if you'd speak a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll start by saying that this was the hardest chapter to write. It was the last chapter I wrote in my book because I was putting it off, I think, um, mainly because one of the reasons I, well, there were a few reasons why I found it hard. One was that there are no surviving buildings from the Yongle reign in Beijing. So I didn't have a lot of material evidence. What I had was, you know, the Forbidden City Palace as it stands today, and then reconstruction drawings. So the the Forbidden City as it was handed down to us today is how it looked in the Qing dynasty. But the basic parameters of that palace were, um, were devised under Yongle, but still not, not, we don't have any, none of the buildings uh, in that palace uh, survive from the Yongle reign. So I didn't have that much to work with. So it was looking at a lot of city plans uh, from the Forbidden City and then comparing, comparing them to city plans uh, from Nanjing, which was the capital of Yongle's father, the Hongwu Emperor. So um, what I wanted to show overall is that the forbid the plan of the Forbidden City was was basically almost almost wholesale modeled on Nanjing. And I saw this as a, a political, yet another um, political move for Yongle. I mean, it's, it's common for Chinese cities to be modeled on cities in the past. So this was not something novel in the Yongle reign. Um, we have records dating 
you know, even in the Song dynasty of, of former pal- the remains of former palaces being, um, or former palace halls being measured to get their dimensions so that the buildings could be constructed according to previous dimensions or the dimensions of buildings in previous capitals. So this was nothing new, but I will say the extent to which um, the palace in Beijing uh, was built in the same manner as Nanjing, I think is, is novel or is new in Chinese history. I don't think we see two capital cities that were so closely, uh, were so architecturally analogous um, so I saw that as a political move just because, you know, I, I don't want everything to boil down to Yongle's usurpation and his justification for political rule. But I do feel like it is an explanation for a lot of his, or motivation for a lot of his actions. And especially in that case, in, in text during the time, in his own writings, he he did always, you know, he said that he wanted his capital capital to be like that of his father's. Um, But then he specifically said, but I want my capital to surpass my father's in, um, in grandeur. So there was a sense that that's where the title perfecting the past came from. There was a sense that he wasn't, um, he wasn't just modeling his capital or his, his palaces on that of his father, but he was taking that model and making it better somehow. So I would say the ways in which he did make it, obviously made it better were uh, material, the construction materials, specifically the the timber used for the frames, the frames of the buildings, which I examine in the second chapter. Um, But there were some other modifications as well. Great. Thank you. Well, I must say that one of my favorite chapters in your book is um, the second chapter on these, uh, on this Nanmu wood and um, these monumental halls that he had built, and the fascinating story of these trees and and their harvest and um, their use in buildings and how many people were involved and just basically how cool these trees were. Um, it's really a, a moment of sort of environmental history in your book that I really enjoyed. So I wonder if you could introduce us to these. Uh, these Nanmu trees and why they uh, were so special and how they made their way into various architectural projects that Yongle started. Sure. So that was a really fun chapter to write, I think, precisely because of what you're saying here, that there were just so many stories that came out of the research, um, which I, I don't think I anticipated how rich the subject would be before I started. But there are lots of local records or records in local gazetteers that really um, help bring a human dimension to the construction of these grand halls. So Nanmu is a type of wood and a tree that only grows in southwest China or grew in southwest China. There's not that much of it left anymore. But during that time in southern Sichuan province, what's now southern Sichuan and northern Yunnan province, um, and some forests scattered around other parts of the Southwest. Uh, There were once huge, dense, old-growth forests of this tree, Uh, and they they were very tall and very thick trees, and the ones that were used for the, the grandest halls would have taken hundreds of years to 
uh, reach the the desired uh, column thickness. Um, so these were not easy to find. I, in my chapter, I call the Yongle harvest the period in which Yongle harvested harvested these timbers the period of abundance because really he got he was the first emperor. Um, in Chinese history, he wasn't the first to use Nanmu, but he was the first to construct all of the large halls in his uh, palace out of them and his tomb. So it wasn't just restricted to the palace. There were some other ritual buildings uh, in and around the capital that also employed Nanmu wood. Um, so he he really had his choice of the uh, trees growing close to the waterways, which was crucial because we see that later when uh, emperors subsequent to Yongle continued building in Nanmu, because after the Nanmu reign, as I argue, it had become considered the imperial wood and anything else was inferior. So they all, if a building burnt down or if a, a new building was being erected, they, they all went, they all sent um, officials to go help harvest Nanmu wood. So, as time went on, it became more and more difficult to find trees growing close to the waterways. It's not that all the forests were deforested. And um, I think going into this project, I had a sense that they were, um, but it wasn't that it was, it was mainly that the very old timbers had all been cut down and especially those anywhere near the waterways. Uh, so if they weren't near the waterways, they were extremely difficult to get out of the, the steep mountains. Um, so it's a really interesting and I think complex history that, as you said, pulls together, uh, you know, environmental issues, but also many social issues because so many people lost their lives in this process and from the mid-Ming dynasty, we have uh, records and even illustrated records, which is fun for the art historian, of uh, people uh, making pleas, officials making pleas to the emperor to please stop the uh, construction of halls made of Nanmu because it was so devastating on the local communities. Um, so it was quite, the that chapter was was really fun to to write, you know, not to mention the buildings themselves, I think are just gorgeous. And they're really representative of, I think, a kind of what I might call a classical, a classic Yongle style. So we're used to, um, well, I, I don't know what most people's conceptions of architecture from late imperial China is, but I would guess that most associate with the kind of Qing Dynasty, Rococo, lots of carving and, and gilding, uh, but Ming imperial architecture was not that. It was uh, it really celebrated the material, um, the wood material, and was very you know was was simple um, and unadorned, or at least that's what it seems like from the surviving buildings we have. Great. So I'm going to um, ask a little bit more about the the Nanmu. If people wanted to find this tree or recognize the wood? Is there a way that they could uh, recognize it uh, or recognize the tree? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm no expert in this, but the tree, the Nanmu trees are huge. So I think, um, I think people living in that area would have no problem whatsoever locating the trees. And especially because they knew where those forests were. Now there's, I mean, 
I don't know, if somebody put a lineup of trees in front of me and asked me to identify the non-moo one right now, I might have some idea, but I don't think it's it's hard if you have if you live near the trees or have any uh, sense of you know forestry. Uh, today in the the only hall of non-moo that still survives from the Yongle period. Uh, which is the sacrificial hall at his tomb uh, just north of Beijing, his tomb called Changling. Uh, there was a gift shop set up where non-mu was being sold, and especially this like prized gold thread non-mu and beads, kind of the, the Buddhist uh, meditation beads were, uh, or prayer beads were made from the non-mu, and they were selling for thousands of not just renminbi, but thousands of dollars, as far as I remember, like $1,200 for a bracelet, something like that. So it's still valuable. So I wonder if you would give us, um, maybe give us a description of of this Ming style of imperial architecture that you started to talk about a few moments ago. You have a lot of wonderful uh, architectural drawings, and maps and other things in the book that I know you worked really hard to to get into the book. And since we're talking in a podcast, we can't see those right away. So I wonder if you might give us a, a vision of what some of these Ming buildings under Yongle's reign were like. Sure. I mean, due to a lack of evidence, it's hard to say for sure. So what what I mean by a lack of evidence, because I, I know I started this uh, podcast saying that Actually, a surprisingly large amount of buildings survives from the Yongle period, but that's still just a handful. And those buildings, due to their different functions, have different decoration uh, levels of decoration. So, for instance, the Tibetan Buddhist monastery out in um, western Qinghai province has a lot more ornamentation in terms of murals and they're even um, some of the roof tiles are molded with Sanskrit letters and those kinds of things, those kinds of Buddhist decorations. Um, you know, so it's a more decorated structure uh, that the same goes for the Taoist um, buildings on Mount Wudang. They, they have, have been renovated over time and have all sorts of kind of Taoist symbolism and, and uh, images embedded into them that we don't see, for instance, in the sacrificial hall of Nanmu that I just mentioned. So, you know, if just to keep that in mind, that based on the function of the building, you'll see different levels of decoration. But if I were to define um, the Ming style especially under Yonglo, one characteristic would definitely be enormous. He really built on a massive scale, not just in, t- in terms of the amount of projects that he was involved in and how large they are. Uh, for instance, the Taoist complex on, on Wudangshan, on Mount Wudang in Hubei province was just a basically a whole mountain range dotted with temples. Um, but but also in terms of the size of the individual buildings. So we know from records, for instance, that the, some of the main halls in the Forbidden City that were erected under Yongle 
were much bigger than the current standing buildings, which just couldn't, due to limitations in the subsequent reconstructions, could not be built on such a large scale. So they were grand, these imperial buildings. And as I mentioned in relation to the Nanmu, they were also um, really, really celebrated the material in ways that... um, I think is is unique to the time period. Uh, so so we see, for instance, in the sacrificial hall, unadorned columns of Nanmu as a way to show off the grain. Um, and and of course, Yongle went to great lengths not just to secure the Nanmu, but also to create, for instance, the gold, the so called gold bricks that paved the the floors of the palace. Um, so it seems like he really put a lot of, he and, you know, his officials really put a lot of attention in, into, uh, the materials. And I think that's a defining characteristic of Ming architecture. Can you say a little bit more about these gold bricks? Sure. Um, so I discussed this in the uh, first chapter of my book although just very briefly. So gold bricks are not made of gold. Um, They're called gold bricks probably because they were so expensive and time-consuming to make. Um, But you'll see them if you... They're still used on the floors of halls in the Forbidden City. So for tourists that go to the Forbidden City, they will be able to see them. These bricks are, they take, now I'm forgetting, of course, I could just open my book and (laughs) look at all the figures, but they take several years to make one of them because just, it's a, it's a very involved process. They were made in kilns in Suzhou uh, in the South and then uh, shipped up the Grand Canal because of course they were very heavy too, but they take a very long time to make. They're very dense and they're actually very beautiful. It's not something I think most people would notice unless you were kind of clued into how expensive and how time consuming they were to make. But I, you know, I've seen, I've seen some, they're large too. They're large square bricks and they look like, they look like they're made of, they're, they're made of ceramic, of course, but they look like they're, they could be made of bronze or iron or just a a dark, a dark metal. Um, And then when they're, they can, they have this kind of glaze on them that is reflective. And so it also, it looks like polished metal. And I'm, I'm sure that was the key to make it look like this, you know, very expensive metal floor, but it was, uh, it was made of ceramic or made of clay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, move on and uh, talk to what is obviously a favorite chapter of mine, your third chapter, mm-hmm. uh, which is on uh, what you call the Imperial Turn in the Wudong Mountains uh, and Yongle's um, patronage of the Taoist deity Junwu, the perfected warrior. And you talk a lot in in this in this section of the book about how uh, Yongle's construction projects there reordered the sacred landscape. So I wonder if you could talk first about um, why Yongle felt this affinity for for Wu and uh, his home mountain, Wudong, and then how his construction projects reordered the sacred landscape. Sure. So 
Um, Yongle claimed to have a, a kind of special connection with this deity, Zhenwu, who was a deity popular before the Ming Dynasty. Zhenwu has a long history, and, and you would definitely be able to say more on this than I can. But suffice to say that this wasn't a, a new deity that emerged in, in the Ming period. Um, Yongle, it seems, was attracted to him for you know, a number of reasons. Yongle, uh, sorry, Zhenwu was associated with the military and with the North. And Yongle was also had his capital in the North. And even before the capital was in Beijing, he was enfiefed as a prince there. Um, and he was also a great military uh, ruler. So those may be explanations for why Zhenwu and why not another, let's say, Buddhist deity. Um he also, in, in official records, we read this story, you know, that was clearly fabricated and probably fabricated from Yongle, or at least, to, you know, somebody close to him at the court, which claimed that Zhenwu had intervened during an important civil war uh, in which, uh, or an important civil war, an important battle between um, Judi, that's Yongle, Yongle's name before he became the emperor. So between Judi and his nephew. And according to this story, uh, right as the battle was about to begin, Zhenwu appeared in the sky before Yongle. You know, the sense is that he was encouraging him, also perhaps, uh, you know, giving him the, the mandate of heaven at, the, of that, at that point. Um, so Interestingly, in this anecdote, Zhenwu struck a pose. He, he let down his long hair and he held his sword up in the sky. And then, and then Yongle imitated that pose and then went into battle and was successful. So there's this kind of mirroring between the emperor and uh, the deity. And it, you know, Yongle really tried to... Um, create this this link between himself and the deity Zhenwu through uh, not just kind of official propaganda, textual propaganda, but also through his patronage of this Taoist mountain, which was said to be um, the, the kind of sacred abode of Zhenwu, um, the sacred, the earthly abode of, of Zhenwu. So... Um, so Yongle claimed that Zhenwu had aided him in his usurpation. And because of that, he was going to rebuild all the Taoist temples on Wudang. So one of the reasons why my chapter is entitled The Imperial Turn is because listeners should be aware that Yongle did not create the sacred landscape of Wudangshan. It had already been in the Yuan dynasty. It already had a lot of uh, Taoist temples on it in the Yuan dynasty, but a lot of them had been destroyed by the Ming or were otherwise in disrepair. So Yongle had vowed to repair them all. Um, and when he did, he also he also connected them together in a way that didn't seem... Uh, it didn't seem to be that it, it, it seems like it, during the Yuan dynasty, the, te the temples were more disparate or disconnected. But during Yongle's reign, he, for instance, not just uh, 
refurbished all the temples or rebuilt them in a lot of cases, but he also rebuilt all the pathways connecting them and created huge pilgrimage routes and really made it into a kind of cohesive sacred space rather than one that's disconnected. And then the crowning jewel of that project was what's called the Golden Hall. So Taoist uh, monks living on the mountain in the Yuan dynasty had built a a small copper hall uh, and placed it on the summit. So Yongle stole that idea, but he made it better by creating a golden hall. So it was actually a brass a brass, uh, a brass hall that he had made in Nanjing and then shipped in pieces to the mountain and then erected, then the, the bronze hall was moved to a lower peak and he erected his new Ming, uh, minute, still miniature hall, but some golden hall at the summit. Um, and that was really a, uh, it marked the spot of Jun Wu's supposed ascension to heaven so uh, it was really an important kind of, it was an important location, not to mention it was at the very top of this huge mountain range. And for those of you who haven't been to Wudangshan, it's not just one small hill or something. This is a huge, massive mountain range and the pilgrimage takes days. So if not weeks, um, I haven't done the pilgrimage myself. I take the cable car up, but even, I mean, even that is it's exhausting to do any part of the pilgrimage. It's a lot of climbing. Um, I've done, I've done several little chunks of it, but it's, I've never attempted the whole thing because it's so arduous. So this was a massive, massive undertaking. It was not, it was not just a, you know, build a couple buildings here and then call it and then build some roads to connect them and call it a day. So one of the things I like about this chapter in your book is, uh, and something that that all of us that work on on Taoist things in the Ming try to do is dissuade the impression that emperors like Yongle and other emperors were completely Buddhist and and Confucian in their focus of their building projects and their activities. I wonder if there are other um, things during Yongle's period that. Uh, are non-Buddhist that you discovered in your research? Well, I think the most important one is the... um, So I already mentioned that Yongle modeled the Forbidden City, what was later called the Forbidden City, so modeled his palace on that of his father's in Nanjing. But one of the main differences was a hall located at the very north of the palace complex, which is still there, but it was rebuilt in the mid-Ming dynasty. Um, And it was a temple dedicated to Jun Wu. So that just really had a very prominent place. As far as I know, there weren't Buddhists. Again, it's hard to know due to a lack of textual records. But as far as I know, there were not Buddhist temples at that time in the palace, but there was a Taoist temple specifically get dedicated to Junwu in a very prominent position in the northernmost position right along the central axis. Um, so that I, you know, there's there's that's an undeniable gesture to Junwu uh, by establishing such a prominent uh, shrine to him within the palace. I, I think that's that's probably that's what come to, comes to mind first. 
Yes, exactly. The Jin An Dien, yes. uh, which often if you go to the Forbidden City, it's closed to the public, sadly. Oh, I've never been inside. Yes, yeah. I've, I've seen pictures of the yes. interior and I, it looks really interesting in there. Yes, there's, I, a, yeah. Yeah. there's a recent volume, um, a set of volumes in Chinese, of course, about the architecture of the hall um, that uh, is wonderful and lets those of us who haven't been able to get inside see a little bit of what it's like. Yeah, that's great. So um, I wonder if we might shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, the Gautama Monastery, which is in a really relatively isolated uh, place during during the time that Yongle was alive and uh, isn't a place that many people who aren't familiar with the main sort of scope of love and patronage of Tibetan style Buddhism would know about. So I wonder if you talk a little bit about uh, the monastery at Gautama and or the Gautama Monastery and why Yongle decided to patronize this place. Sure. So this building is, or this site, this monastery is not at all on the same scale as the Wudong Mountain Project or the palaces in Beijing. But it's a very rich site. In fact, this was my first foray into Yongle architect, Yongle's architecture, and this is what I wrote, the site I wrote my PhD dissertation on. Um, it's located in Qinghai province. From Xining today, it takes about, well, there's a new freeway now. Anyway, it takes an hour, an hour or two from the capital of Qinghai province today. Um, so it's in a mountainous region and not a highly populated area at all. There are some small villages in the area. So the, the history of this monastery is really interesting because it uh, began under Yongle's father, the Hongwu Emperor. And it's not like he sought out the Hongwu Emperor. He was himself a Buddhist, but, um, but the, the history of this monastery um, happened because or the origins of this monastery were that a, a monk, a Tibetan monk in Qinghai province, uh, who was locally influential, traveled to the Nanjing capital under in the Hongwu reign. And he had horses with him as a tribute offering. And he asked for Ming imperial protection of the monastery, because at that time, the the Northwestern frontier, I guess there, there were a lot of different people of different ethnicities, including Mongols from the previous UN period. And there was a lot of interfighting in the region. And so this, this Tibetan Buddhist, uh, local Tibetan Buddhist master, who seems like a, a highly intelligent person had the idea to get it, um, support from the Ming court. Um, and so that offered them not only protection, but also money to um, establish this monastery, which at the time was just a small, we don't know much about it, but just a small temple. So when Yongle took the throne, he he was also a huge, he, not also, he surpassed his father in the patronage of Tibetan Buddhism. So he uh, he expanded the monastery considerably. And most of the buildings at the monastery now date to the Yongle period or just after his reign, because Yongle's grandson, the Xuanda Emperor, 
also continue built continued building at the site, but mainly as a way to finish the project that had been initiated under Yongle, uh, rather than because he had a deep. Per- it seems that rather than because he had a deep personal interest in the site, um, or at, la- at least in his own words, he he uh, continued building there to finish the project of his uh, grandfather. Um, so. It's it's a politically very complicated site because that area was important to Yongle because there were a lot of horses in that region and the Tibetan lamas, the, t- the Tibetan monks who were living there would bring the horses as tribute um, to, to the Ming court so that it was a useful region, um, you know, in terms of the horses that Yongle needed for his military campaigns. Uh, it was also, uh, you know, a, a, remo- a region that was remote from the capital, and so it was good to have a stronghold there. And this this uh, monastery really acted as a kind of outpost from which also the Ming could better control that that area. Um, and then also Yongle was a great patron of of Buddhism and Buddhist arts, so. He seemed to have formed some close connections, maybe not super close, but at least at least personal connections with uh, the abbots at that monastery who visited the capital more than once. And we have records of them being hosted at the capital and banqueted. So there also seemed to be some personal re- uh, personal relationships between Yongle and the, the monks at uh, Gautama Monastery or Chutansu. Uh, so it's a, a rich site for a lot of reasons. I wonder if you could give us a sense um, of the buildings there. I know in your book you're able to talk about the architecture and some of the statues and murals there. I wonder if you give us sort of a sense to help us imagine what uh, what one of the buildings there was like for during the Yongle period. Yeah, it's not a huge monastery. It's not like a sprawling monastery. Um, it's pretty contained. Originally, there was a a wall around it, a tamped earth wall. And so it was heavily fortified because, you know, you can imagine that something like that probably had the most wealth of any, any site within miles for a lot of its history before some of these great Qing dynasty monasteries uh, started being erected in the the general region. Um, so it was heavily fortified at once, at one point, and um, inside, and then there's just a, a kind of covered corridor that surrounds the whole thing. So that's what I mean, it's self-contained. It's this, you know, nice, neat rectangle. Uh, there's a hill behind it. And so as you, the monastery um, as you enter through the front gate of the monastery, it, it kind of slopes gently up a hill. Uh, then, as is typical in Buddhist architecture and in non-Buddhist architecture as well, Chinese architecture, the main buildings are arranged along a central axis. So we have three main buildings, um, and the two first halls are relatively small. But you go inside and they're just exquisitely decorated with paintings and the ceilings are adorned with mandalas. And, you know, for people that really study Tibetan Buddhist art, it's just a rich trove of of material. Um, So there are just, you know, 
head to or floor to ceiling, the interiors of these small halls are exquisitely decorated. And then the largest hall along the central axis and the rearmost one was kind of Yongle's the greatest contribution of Yongle to the site. And it's a, a massive hall that uh, has a lot in common with the architecture, early Ming architecture still, still surviving in Beijing. And that is because it was constructed by craftsmen and carpenters sent from the imperial capital. Um, so it is a, again, a massive hall, beautifully decorated on the interior. And uh, the materials are not as qual- high quality as the building. It's not a non-mu building. Um, so you can see they used local wood and it's not as beautiful. And it, um, the, the site itself is, is not in a, as great a shape as the more heavily touristy areas in, um, in and around Beijing, uh, but it's still well-maintained and still well-preserved. So it's just, it's a, a site worth going to if you're ever out in Western China, for sure. It's, but, I mean, in terms of the paintings, then that covered corridor also just has, it's like 500 square meters of Ming and Qing dynasty, mostly blue and green landscape style paintings of the Buddha's life and other stories. Uh, so it's, you know, it's an incredible site. Uh, especially in terms of the painting, but also in terms of the architecture and um, and just Thank the history. You. I know that uh, one of the things that um, comes up in your book is Yongle's identification with, I believe it's Vajradhara. Um, so if he hmm. identified with Jianwu for the Wudong projects, I wonder how much of a parallel there is with his identification with Vajradhara. Well, that seems to be less of a personal one and more something that was associated with him afterwards. So that is, Gautama Monastery was dedicated to Vajradhara. And uh, so Yongle, in addition to sending craftsmen to build uh, the main halls of the monastery sent a a supposedly self-arisen golden Buddha image, which was you know, probably Vajradhara um, to the temple. And we know that Shwenda also sent a Vajradhara image to be housed in the main, that huge hall once it was completed. Um, so there's a local legend that after Shwenda had com- the, the main hall had com- been completed in the Shwenda reign, Yongle appeared, he was dead by that point, Yongle appeared from the sky as a kind of relic, it's, a, it's in a Tibetan text that's been translated into Chinese. I can't read Tibetan, but I read the Chinese version. And he appears in the sky as a relic of the local people, it says, took it to be a relic of Yongle. There was some statue that flew in the sky that people associated with Yongle. So it seems like there were all sorts of legends circulating in the area of Yongle kind of being connected to Vajradhara and and people also called that main hall the Yongle Hall rather than its more formal name, which is Longguodian. So there was their local lore developed surrounding the connection between Vajradhara and Yongle in that particular region. And then at, in the we- region of Wudang, the same thing happened in which Yongle was was connected to Junwu in in local histories and local legends. Terrific, thank you. 
It's a wonderful image mm-hmm. of the apparition of Yuma. <laughs> I know. I like it too. <laughs> so one of the, um, you know, we're kind of getting toward the end here, but I know that overall, you know, you have some really strong themes in the book that that sort of go beyond Yongla and and discuss what I might say is architecture as empire. I don't know if that specific mm. phrase comes up in your books book, but that was really something I was thinking of. And I know um, towards the end of the book, you're really sort of rhetorically asking a question that you've answered in the book. And so there's sort of two questions there that I think might be a great way to sum up sort of the the bigger um, the bigger takeaways, say, of your book. And the first one is, is how did architecture define Yongle's emperorship? And then the second being, how did Yongle's emperorship define architecture? So sort of both of those questions, how did the architecture define his emperorship and how does the emperorship define architecture? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I wanted to show in the book was just how important architecture was to his reign, which is something that you know, he's such a famous emperor, but architecture is hardly ever is introduced into the picture of him as an emperor. Instead, it's the encyclopedia, it's the voyages, it's the usurpation, um, and maybe, you know, some other things as well. But architecture really seemed to be important to him. And he built all over the place, as I show in my book. So um, I feel like, through architecture and through an examination of his specific projects, we can really get a sense of what kind of empire he was trying to build and what kind of legacy as an emperor, so his emperorship, he was trying to leave behind. And it's really one, I mean, it's many things, (laughs) it's complex, but it expands, it covers a lot of territory. So he was clearly an outward looking emperor and he wanted to establish a presence in in areas near and far, you know, from from the imperial capital. So through through his architecture, we can see that he had this kind of just a sense of a, that he that he ruled over a vast vast territory, and that he could extract materials from wherever he wanted within that territory and he could build wherever he wanted within that territory. So we, we see his image of, or he, I feel like we see a sense, we get a sense of how he conceived of the, the territory over which, which he ruled through his architectural projects. Of course, we also see how much he really wanted his rule his emperorship to be um, divinely sanctioned. So he went to great lengths to build in a massive, uh, Mount Wudong is the, the, the quintessential example, but put a lot of money and resources and time and energy into building religious buildings so that, you know, he could claim a, a close connection to these deities, but also to have the monks, both Taoist and Buddhist at the, the religious sites, he the temples he patronized, pray for his empire and pray for him and pray for the longevity of his dynasty. So I really feel like once those buildings were built and he installed all the Taoist and Buddhist ritual specialists in them, then they got to work <laughs> praying for the longevity of his dynasty. So you can also see how he uh, really 
employed, you know, every, every kind of religion at his, at his service. And then I guess the third component is you, you do get a sense that he wanted his, a clear sense through his architectural projects that his reigns. I mean, the way I can explain this is I don't think he was personally very popular when he was alive because of the way he came to the throne and he murdered so many people and, and he was probably a, a cruel ruler in a lot of ways. And I think he, he conceived of his um, emperorship in a lot of ways in terms of his legacy, in terms of what he left behind. And I think that's why he put so much effort into this architecture, something that would, would last beyond him. And same with the, the encyclopedia he sponsored and other huge projects but he really seemed to be thinking past his own death and past his own reign uh, in, in historical terms, how, how he would be remembered in the future. And, you know, it worked. I just wrote a whole book on him. So clearly he, what he left behind is, is still important enough to talk about you know, 600 years later or so. So he really had this vision into the future um, you know, thinking about his legacy in a very, you know, long, long distance terms. So, so he's a remarkable, remarkable figure. <laughs> really is. Wonderful. That's, that's a great way to, to sort of wrap up our discussion of your book. So I'd like to close by asking you to tell us a little bit about um, what you're working on now. Sure. Um, I think I, I'm i switching gears from Imperial, although the Imperial might end up um, coming into the book a little bit here and there, uh, and thinking more about uh, individuals, well, so, so not looking at emperors specifically, but rather rich people, I guess it boils down to, but kind of aristocrat, elite, um, uh, you know, elite members of society and uh, their tombs and their conceptions of death. So the time frame will also be the Ming, possibly going into the Qing as well. For now, I'm looking at a lot of Ming material. Um, and this, like Ming above ground architecture, has totally been ignored. Tombs in general have received a lot of attention in art historical scholarship, but it seems to just end at the beginning of the Ming period. It's just there's nothing written on it at all. And there are lots of explanations, you know, just tombs aren't interesting in the Ming period, or, you know, we don't have a lot of, not as many tombs have been excavated. But actually, if you if you look, there's, there's a huge amount of interesting material there. And it's virtually untapped. So I'm really interested in death rituals. I'm interested in conceptions of the afterlife. I'm interested in um, what people left behind and why how it was associated with their, um, their own social, uh, their own identity in life. So how it differed according to class or according to gender or according to region. Um, so that, that's what I'm working through right now. All this, uh, all this, it's less architectural and more um, material culture, but there's still, I'm still interested in the architecture of tombs as well. Wonderful. That sounds like a great project. So thanks for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And take care. Thank you. I appreciate you having me here.